All right, good morning, good morning. Go ahead and open up to 1 Peter, chapter 2. And if I haven't met you before, my name is Chris Greer, and I am one of the elders here. I have the privilege of opening God's Word on a regular basis. Um, and this morning we're going to be again in 1 Peter. So 1 Peter, chapter 2. And we'll be in verse 9 and 10, and this morning we will strive to finish verse 10. Um, and I'm just going to go ahead and say that you might want to buckle up a little bit this morning because we've got a lot to cover in this verse. It's a glorious verse, and I'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag in terms of what my point is and what I think Peter's point is here in the verse. Peter is saying that At one time, we were not believers, but now we're believers. And he puts it in the language of the people of God. At one time, we were not the people of God, and now we are the people of God. At one time, we have not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And I'm going to say that this is true for you if you're a Christian, particularly because God considers you the Israel of God. So you have received mercy because you are the Israel of God. That's the fundamental point this morning, that you have received mercy because you are the Israel of God. And I'll explain that and unpack that this morning. So before I do, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the reality that for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, it is always well with our souls, always And Lord, we pray that you'd help us day in and day out to recognize that and to realize that and to sort of lift our eyes above the the circumstances we face that are difficult, that we'll always look to the greater horizon, be able to peek our eyes above the clouds, as it were, and see the sun for us is always shining. Lord, thank you for that. And we know that's possible, Lord Jesus, because you took our sin on yourself. That very thing that brought division between us and you. You took it on yourself on the cross. You bore all of our sin, all of them. That we might be forgiven, that we might be justified, that we might be given mercy and now be made the people of God. And Lord, help us this morning again to just know what that means, to know the history behind it and to appreciate the glory of it all. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read verse 9 and 10. You'll follow along with me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Talking to the Gentiles scattered around Asia, primarily Gentile audience now. I'm sure some Jews sprinkled in there, but primarily Gentile audience. Peter says this, But you, those of you who are in Christ, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we're going to look here at verse 10. We looked at verse 9 and finished up verse 9 last week where Peter tells the brethren there, that they've been made a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation for a purpose, that they might proclaim the excellencies of the Lord. 
And this very Lord is the one who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then Peter immediately continues his thought, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You've not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So this, this term for that he uses in verse 10 links you back to what he just said about being in darkness at one point and now being pulled out of that darkness by God's call and put into the marvelous light. So this four links us back to what he has just said. He says, in effect, that God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And let me explain it further, Peter says. What I mean is, you once were not a people, but now you're the people of God. You once had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what I'm saying here is that when you get called out of darkness and put into the marvelous light of God, Peter sort of now puts a fine point on it and says, what I mean is that you were once not a people. God was at one time not your God. At one time you did not have his mercy. And so what he does here is he sort of defines what he means by darkness and light. He called you out of darkness. Well, what's that? That's, that's, that's being a stranger to God. That's being devoid of God. That's, that's being someone who's not owned by God. That's someone who's a stranger to him. Not being a part of his people. And it's also darkness is not having the mercy of God. So he, he's like he explains further what darkness is, why it's so awful. It's so awful because God is not your God if you're in darkness. The true and living God, you're without him. You don't have him. And that's the essence of darkness. When we think of darkness, we, we tend to think of sort of back alleys, right? And, 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 and sort of crooked dealings in private rooms that are dark and smoky, right? And we think darkness. Darkness is simply just being without the Lord, not having him, not knowing him. It could be a grandmother just with a, with a, with a, with a whole host of wonderful grandchildren that she loves, and yet she doesn't know God. This woman is in darkness. It can be a, it can be a put-together family just that are, that are sort of living out and fleshing out the American dream to the full, and yet they don't know God. They're in darkness, so we've got to be careful, too, to understand what, what the Bible means by darkness. We have to be very careful to, to understand what the darkness truly is. Don't let outward appearances dictate your view of who's in darkness or who isn't. Oh, they're just so nice. You know, or oh, they're just, they, everything's just so put together in their life. Yeah, but if they don't know the Lord, they're in darkness. They're living their own way. They're going their own way. Making a name, making a kingdom for themselves. And this is the essence of darkness, and this is, what, this is how Peter defines it. Darkness is once not being a people. Darkness is not being shown mercy by God. This is, this is it. So Peter says, you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, at one level, this is pretty straightforward, isn't it? One level, this is pretty straightforward. Peter is setting forth the glorious reality that at one time you, if you're a Christian in here, and, and the people he's talking to, the believers, at one time they didn't know God, but now you do. And now they do because of his mercy. God's compassion, God's pity, God's mercy, 
compelled him to call you out of darkness and bring you into his marvelous light. This is amazing and wonderful in and of itself. Just, just that simple interpretation of this verse. But the sentence, you'll notice in your Bible, is a quote. It's a quotation. It's, for most of our English translations, you can see it's in all caps. So it's a quote, and it's a profound one at that, because of the history behind it. This is a quote from the 8th century prophet Hosea. So to appreciate this verse, I want to understand the context from where it comes. So turn to Hosea chapter 1. We're going to be in there in a minute for a minute. Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. Now we're going to read chapter 1. We're going to work through it in a cursory fashion, really. Because I want you to understand what's in Peter's mind and why he pulls this verse out of Hosea 1 and says that you Gentiles all over Asia are the fulfillment of this verse. So verse 1 of chapter 1 of Hosea. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So he just gives a brief setting here on the time frame. So we're to understand here that Hosea is speaking to Israel as a divided Israel. So at this point it's, After Solomon's death, the kingdom divided, north and south. The north ruled by Jeroboam at this time. The south ruled by the kings mentioned here, Uzziah through Hezekiah. So so Hosea is speaking to a divided kingdom after the reign of Solomon, yet right before the exile. So some of you know the history of Israel. They went into exile by God's decree and, and because of his judgment and because of their sin. The north experienced the exile by Assyria, and the south later, 150 so years later, experienced exile by the nation of Babylon. So we're in this in-between stage. God sets Hosea apart to proclaim warning and promise to these people who are in danger of going into exile. Verse 2 When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry. Now, Hosea is a prophet. And if you know the, if you're familiar with the prophets, one thing you understand about a prophet is that they are truly set apart for the Lord's use. I mean, you look at Ezekiel and some of the things he had to endure, Jeremiah. But it's hard to imagine something can get much worse than what Hosea takes on, frankly. 
what does he go through? What, an, what, what assignment does the Lord give him? Well, God's assignment to him was to go and take a prostitute, marry her, and have children with her, and even experience the fact that she will have even other children that you will also have to take care of that didn't come from you. Go take for yourself a wife of harlotry, so she already was a prostitute. There's People debate that, but I mean, it seems clear. She already was. And have children of harlotry. That is, you, she's going to go continue to be a prostitute and bear children, and you're going to have to take care of them. And the Lord knows this. And it's precisely his plan that this come about. So that he can illustrate something vital for Israel, and more importantly to us, about who we are and who he is. See, it's one thing to say, it's one thing to say abortion is wrong, right? It's another thing to put pictures up and see how they kill children in the womb. Has a little bit more stark effect, doesn't it? When you see body parts and blood. Then you can see, okay, yeah, how wicked and evil and awful. It's one thing to say that you're a spiritual adulterer, adulterous nation, Israel. But I'm going to bring it home. And I'm going to sort of, I'm going to sort of put flesh on my word. And I'm going to set apart this man and show you this scandalous marriage, and you're going to all be aware of it, to illustrate your own harlotry. God goes to great lengths to to really show us and help us understand the heinousness of idolatry, the heinousness of sin, the heinousness of having other loves more than the Lord. And the Lord flat out says, this is why I'm doing it in the next statement, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So here we have the reason why Hosea is to take on this prostitute and and have children of harlotry. God wants Hosea to go marry this prostitute because the land commits prostitution every day. That is, they forsake the Lord with other lovers. What an indictment. Land here doesn't mean dirt, per se. It means people on the land who are personally turning to other lovers and idols rather than their true husband, who is Jehovah. So this grievous marriage Hosea is to take on is to be a visible, tangible, sort of in-your-face illustration and rebuke to the nation of their spiritual adultery to the Lord. And as one reads in the book of Hosea and the history of Israel in the Old Testament, one can understand this a little more fully. Why and sort of what God is illustrating here. Why has he come to this point where he's causing this prophet to take such steps? Why bring about this scandalous marriage? He wants us to understand his exasperation. The exasperation that he feels towards his people 
that he's been so merciful to to this point in history. So you remember the history. The Lord redeems Israel from bondage in Egypt, right? They were enslaved by a tyrannical ruler, Pharaoh of the time. He delivers them by his power and his grace and miracles and signs and wonders. And he does this to bring him to himself, to set them apart as a holy nation and a royal priesthood and so on and so forth. He gives them his law, his love. He leads them in the wilderness. He, de- he, destreet, he, de- he destroys their, own, their foes and, and, and provides for them every day with food and, and even miraculous instances of, of provision. And the history reveals that the people really never returned the love that God had shown to them. Right? Outside of a few outliers, Moses, David, Joshua, Caleb, probably some others sprinkled in there. Outside of a few outliers like that, the people took God um, for granted. They ended up being entirely ungrateful in a matter of days after the Exodus and idolaters in a matter of weeks. And idolatry was really their trend all the way to Hosea's day. God had redeemed them and assumed the role of husband to them, a people who really were no more special inherently than the Egyptians, but because of his love, he, he, he chose to have mercy on them and redeem them because of their oppression. And what did he receive in return but rebellion and disobedience and obstinance, obstinacy and hard hearts? And what God is going to now do in Hosea is illustrate the outrage and pain he himself has endured these last 700 years with a disobedient, obstinate people. He's at the point where he is telling Israel, I'm done, and you will understand why. And he will say that in here. He will say, I'm done. It's not all he'll say, but he does say it. And he does mean it. You know, one thing that we learned from the history of Israel is that God isn't looking for more religion. At some points in the history of Israel, whenever they would start to feel bad about their sin, they would ramp up sacrifices and festivals. And yet their heart was still far away from the Lord. They were still living in sin, still neglecting one another, still not regarding God's law. But yet they would multiply sacrifices. You see this in the book of Amos, for instance. One of the things that we realize is that God is not seeking more religion. You don't need a little more religion in your life. You need him. And what he's seeking is you. He's seeking your heart. He's seeking your commitment to him. He's seeking a wife. Why why do we have the language of God being father and having children, or being a husband and having a wife, or being a friend like to Abram. Because God doesn't want religion. He wants you. This is so important. This is so important. The book of Hosea is God opening up his chest so you can see his own heartbreak and anger because his wife has been cheating on him for years. 
And now he'll illustrate the point in this scandal of marriage. God will not settle for anything less. He will not settle for anything less. That's amazing what kind of God he is. He's a God who who reigns above all things. He's a God whose glory is above the heavens, and yet he's a God. He's a God who wants to walk with you, know you, reveal his heart to you, enlighten your own heart with who he is, speak tenderly to you, care for you. This is who he is. So, what does Hosea do? He obeys. He's a good prophet. He obeys. He went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So here we find out the name of the wife. Her name is Gomer. And we begin now to look at the first of three children that this woman um, gives birth to by the decree of the Lord. This first one's name is Jezreel. Jezreel. The name itself means God sows. But I'm not even sure that that really is why God names this first child Jezreel. Because the text says that name him Jezreel for yet a little while and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. See, Jezreel was a a valley region south of Galilee. Pretty lush, very desirable. Gideon fought a battle there, was successful, had a good history in some ways, but also had a checkered history. And part of that checkered history is this King Jehu and the savagery he exhibited to the house of Ahab. So God names this son, this first son, Jezreel, because of this particular issue with this King Jehu and his savagery and destruction, and the way he did it of Ahab's house. This is what he's talking about with the bloodshed of Jezreel in this valley where he destroyed the house of Ahab. So without going into too much detail, what happened here was that Jehu was sort of used by the Lord to bring judgment and destruction on the house of Ahab. I mean, Ahab, not a good guy, right? Compromiser, idolater, wicked man, didn't live by the truth of the Lord. And Jehu was sort of used by the Lord to bring judgment to him and on his whole house. It was gruesome. Second Kings chapter 10, you can read about it. And in some ways, Jehu fulfilled the will of the Lord in bringing destruction on Ahab, and yet the Lord wasn't finally pleased with Jehu because Jehu was still a functioning idolater. You'll read that in 2 Kings chapter 10. And one has a sense that he was a bloodthirsty man, a man that didn't do this with regard to the Lord. 
So God says he will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. In other words, while Jehu exacted the judgment of God, he must have done it with a heart similar to that of other nations that God used to judge, yet then turned and judged those very people. You remember in Habakkuk, right? The children of Israel are going to be judged by Assyria. Habakkuk knows this. God's going to use Assyria to come and judge his people. God calls them the rod of his anger. They are God's instrument to bring judgment on Israel. And yet, because they're haughty and prideful themselves, when they judge, God brings judgment back on them. So this is the historical situation God has in mind here. God has said here that, I want you to name your son Jezreel because I am going to judge you because of this bloodshed. In other words, this particular pride and, and self-exaltation that Jehu exhibited in his destruction of Ahab without acknowledging the Lord at all in, in, this, in this conquest and in this judgment, the children of Israel exhibited continually. Jehu was just a specimen, but Israel lived this out as well. They're going to be judged for their proud, unbelieving, and idolatrous heart. And God says this little boy's name will remind the people of this inevitable judgment of the Lord. God promises, I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. So that's the first boy's name. The the, the boy's name is Jezreel because God's going to punish because of the bloodshed, because of the violence, because of the pride that he sees in Israel. The next text, the next uh, verse here regarding the second child says this, Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. So now you have child number two. Her name is Lo-Ruhamah, which basically means no mercy or compassion. She's named this because God says, I will not have compassion and mercy any longer. I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. Again, they've been an idolatrous people. And God has reached a breaking point and his mercy is done. They will never see his forgiveness. And while we can see judgment come through the nation of Assyria on Israel in partial fulfillment of this judgment... Nothing fulfills this text of God's pronouncement of judgment on the house of Israel like the passages we read in the New Testament. So I want to give you a little sampling here. I want to give you a sampling here in the New Testament, particularly in Matthew's Gospel, of the fulfillment of these words of God to the house of Israel. Nothing fulfills this passage more than these words that exist in Matthew. Think, think, th- think about these with me. Matthew eight eleven. Right after the Roman centurion shows great faith in who the Lord is. He's a man under authority and Roman centurion understands that about him. That he lives under God's authority and he has a sense of identity, the identity of Jesus more than the Jews. Jesus says in response to that great faith of the Roman centurion, he says, 
to the Jews, I say to you that many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? The fathers of the Jewish nation. Many will come from the, from the north and the south and the east and the west to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he says that the fathers of the Jewish nation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, seated at the table in the kingdom of God, will have people from the east and the west, from the Orient and from the Americas at this table. And yet, the Jewish nation, in general, on the whole, the sons of the kingdom, will be in outer darkness. This is Jesus' view of the Jewish nation, of Israel. Matthew 21, 43, Jesus speaking to the Jews in the parable of the landowner. These parables exist because Jesus is telling them that I've given you a chance, I'm here in front of you, you reject me, therefore I'm turning to another people, I'm turning to the nations. The Jews now are being rejected. This is exactly in fulfillment of Hosea. Matthew 21, 43, therefore Jesus says, I say to you, Jews, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Matthew 23, 37, in in just heart-wrenching statement. As he thinks about the capital city of Jerusalem, the place, or of Israel, the place that was supposed to be where God's heart and mind always dwelled, and yet all that existed there was unbelief, all that existed there was pride, religion, no love for God, hatred for God's true prophets, Jesus looks at Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you or your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. No longer, house of Israel, will you have a thriving house. Your house is being left to you desolate. Matthew 24, Jesus pronounces the judgment of the Romans on Jerusalem as a sort of final straw and sign of God's finished dealings with them as a covenant people. Ethic Israel now living out their divorcement from God as Jeremiah predicted hundreds of years earlier. Which you can look up in the book of Jeremiah. Paul corroborates this. Paul, Paul has some terrifying words describing the Jews who are responsible for the death of Christ and their ongoing hostility to the mission of the gospel. He says this in 1 Thessalonians. For you, brethren, talking to the Christians in Thessalonica, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Well, how did they become imitators? Well, you endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, the Jews, those in Judea. Even as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and drove us out. You'll read the book of Acts and that's what you see over and over. It's the Jews that are stirred up against these apostles. He says, These Jews are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Listen to this. With the result that they, the Jewish people, always fill up the measure of their sins. Always. Give them an opportunity 
to marginalize or mistreat or kill one of God's spokesmen, and they will. They always do, Paul says. They're always hostile, hostile to God's purposes. But wrath, he says, has come upon them to the utmost. The word is the word where we get telos or end, fullness, utmost is the language. Wrath has come upon them to the end. The idea is that the wrath of God will be the end of these Jewish people, the, the Israel that once were the covenant people of God, and it will be a full measure of wrath. Paul says here, the Jews have no hope for their future as some covenant people of God. Wrath has come upon them to the end. And how some preachers and theologians go on to argue that there will be some future ingathering of ethnic Israel by virtue of their ethnicity is beyond me. How you can read Matthew and how you can read Romans and how you can read 1 Thessalonians and come to that conclusion is beyond me. I know that there's some differences of, of opinion here, but I, I just the, the, everything in the New Testament screams that the nation of Israel, as a covenant people of God, that time is over. And it always will be. Paul unequivocally says, wrath has come upon them to the end. Now, this does not mean that all ethnic Jews perished outside of Christ from this point on, in first, from 1 Thessalonians on. That's not, what, that's not what this means. So I want to be clear about that. Jews can be saved gloriously and unite, united to Christ. We want them to be, don't we? And they will be if they turn to Jesus Christ. Romans 11 tells us that the, there are Jews that are foreknown and elect of God. But they have no more advantage anymore because of their pedigree. There is no future advantage. The only advantage is a past advantage. They have no special status anymore. Please understand this. With all the crazy talk about Israel... As holy people, they are not unless they know Jesus Christ. They are in the same boat as everyone else (laughs) in need of Jesus Christ. That's really always been the case, which we're going to find out here. God judged the nation of Israel. And most of them, sadly, have perished under God's wrath. And this is what God said in Hosea, didn't he? I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. That's what he says. And he means what he says. But, with this coming judgment in mind, and almost paradoxically, and back in Hosea, God says he will have compassion on Judah and Israel. In these next verses. What? Seems contradictory. God says it, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. So this deliverance of God is not going to be through 
those means. So here the Lord promises future compassion on Judah. And you may think, oh, well, maybe it's just Judah. Well, no, he goes on. Look what he says. A little bit later, in verse, let's see. Eleven, and the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. So what is going on here? Well, let's look at this third child. When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son, and the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Here the third son, the third child, rather. The son's name means not my people. Illustrating God's attitude toward Israel at the time. Even in this time, in the 8th century, God already, his attitude already is, they're they're strangers to me. Already. God was done with Israel a long time before the coming of Christ. When did he pronounce that he was going to make a new covenant? Yeah. Six, seven hundred years before the coming of Christ, right? Behold, I make a new covenant with the house of Israel, one that will not be like the old. He pledged a new covenant years before the coming of Christ. And here the name of the Son means God has disowned the people. He says, for you are not my people and I am not your God. What a statement. What a horrible, what horrible words those those should have been to the people. And yet there's another glimpse of promise here. Look what he says. Verse 10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you're not my people, it will be said to them, you're the sons of the living God. So here we have another paradoxical promise. Right? First, no more compassion. I'm never going to forgive you, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them. Then he has this statement, you're not my people, I'm not your God, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And then the place where it is said to them, you're not my people, will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. God is going to judge Israel, and yet he promises they will be his people once again and will be called family. The sons of God, he says. So which is it? Will they be judged or won't they? (laughs) Will they be given mercy and called his people? Well, it's both, isn't it? It's both. As I already showed, ethnic Israel will be cut off from God as his covenant people. And yet the Israel of God, made up of Jew and Gentile alike, will be called my people and sons of the living God. That's how you make sense of this. That's how you interpret the Old Testament. 
like the apostles. You might be thinking, wait a minute, so you're saying I'm a member of the Israel of God. I have no background in, in, of Jewish ethnicity. Well, to the New Testament writers and to Jesus, their category now of what comprises the Israel of God is not based on bloodline. It's based on faith in Jesus Christ. And it's all over the New Testament. All over. This is how you make sense of these passages of judgment and mercy on Israel. So when we're reading Peter now, who's writing to a Gentile audience, he can quote this verse where it says, you're not a people, but now you're my people, which was originally intended for Israel and Judah, and Peter applies it to you. The promise that God is going to one day be your God and you're going to be his people, made to Israel, Peter applies to Gentiles in Asia. Why? Because his understanding of the Israel of God expands to Jew and Gentile alike. Now, lest you think I'm making this up, we've got 1 Peter, right, that we've already, I mean, that's already there, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, where he quotes this verse and applies it to the Gentile readers. Let's look at some other places. Romans chapter 2. I just want you to listen. This is not an isolated theology. Romans chapter 2, 28 through 29. Paul is indicting the Jews with self-righteousness. Nothing's changed, right? And, and again, don't, please, don't hear me think, please don't hear me say in these that, that I feel like I'm better or that Gentiles were better in nature than the Jewish people. That's just not the truth. All of us have gone astray. But the reality is that when God gave them the law, they used that law as a measure and as an as a, as a, as a opportunity to establish their own righteousness and they became judgmental people. That's just what happened. Instead of it crushing them and humbling them to their need for Christ, it elevated them in their own eyes and they became a judgmental people. And so Paul now, talking to a people who relies still on their ethnicity as Jewish people says... Romans 2, 28 and 29, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Wait, what? Circumcision is in the flesh. Paul says, not anymore. He just said it, not anymore. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter and his praise is not from men, but from God. A true Jew is one who has been born again, just to say it real plainly. You have the Spirit, and now your whole orientation is not about looking a certain way in the eyes of men. It's about living before God. My praise comes from God, not from you. That's, as Paul says here, a Jew. Romans 9. Let's go there. Romans chapter 9. Romans 9. Oh, that we would have the heart of the Apostle Paul. Romans 9, 1. 
And the only reason he had that heart was because God and the Lord Jesus gave it to him. But it's still his heart. Romans 9, 1. Paul says some scathing things about the Jews, and yet we cannot mistake his scathing words as hardness toward them. Listen to it. Romans 9, 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Why would he say this? He would say this because he's been saying some hard things about the Jewish nation. And he wants you to know what I'm about to say I'm not lying about. And what is that, Paul? Verse 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Paul thinks about the Jewish nation and he can't stop weeping in his heart. Unceasing grief, he says. Every day, I am just utterly grieved. Unceasing grief and sorrow. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service, and the promises. Paul says, these are, these are my kinsmen according to the flesh. This was my upbringing. These are, this is my heritage. These are my neighbors, my friends, my family. And in the past, they, they had the adoption as sons. God had redeemed them. He had become their father. He, they had the glory, the, the covenants, all of the covenants. Think of them. The Mosaic Law, the Davidic Covenant, and the temple service and the promises, all of these things made to these people. Whose are the fathers? And from whom is the Christ? Jesus Christ was a Jew who is over all, God, blessed forever. Amen. So they had these promises, the glory and all these things, and yet you see them, and Paul, you talk about them as if they're completely cut off. So wait a minute. Do they have promises or not? Because it looks like from the way that their their trajectory is headed, they're going to be cut off from God, according to you, and they're going to be under his wrath, according to you, and yet he made promises to them. Has God's word failed? And Paul, verse 6, answers this question, but no, it's not as if God's word has failed. Well, how can you say that? Most of them are unbelieving. And Paul gives the rationale. For they are not all Israel who are from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, that is, Abraham's physical descendants. But, Quoting Genesis 21, through Isaac your seed will be named. That is, Paul explains himself, it is not the children of the flesh, ethnicity, right? That's what we're talking about, who are children of God, has nothing to do with it anymore. It really never did, in one sense. But the children of the promise are regarded as descendants, i.e., the Israel of God, i.e., Abraham's seed. Verse 9, for this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And you know the history from there. Some people take this statement that not all Israel's Israel, that he's only speaking of elect, regenerate Israelites within ethnic Israel. But I do not think that's what Paul says. It's the descendants of Isaac, he says, that are the descendants. What's the significance of Isaac? Isaac was the miraculous seed, wasn't he? 
He was the child of promise. And Paul says here that true Israel are in his line. All the saints who have faith are regarded as descendants in the true spiritual Israel of God. This is how we know the promise of God to bless Israel eternally holds true because God had always in mind the people of faith, spiritual Israel. Israel after the spirit, Israel after the promise. This is how we know God's not a liar. And later in Romans 9, Paul's going to even make this point even clearer, and he's going to quote Hosea. Romans 9, starting in verse 22. After Paul has talked about God's purpose and election, that you've got a children of promise, and you've got a children after the flesh, and this is all according to God's elected purposes. Verse 22, Paul says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And to make known, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles, as he says in Hosea. Wait, wait, let's read that again. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles, as he says in Hosea. I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, its remnant that will be saved, for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. The promise in Hosea was made to Israel in the house of Judah. And yet Paul sees the Gentiles and their salvation as fulfilling that promise. Ethnic Israel by and large pursued righteousness by law which cut them off. Gentiles now are included in the Israel of God by faith. This is why Jesus in John chapter 8 was overturning the Pharisees' understanding of what it really meant to be children of Abraham. Do you remember that whole interchange? They're like, we're children of Abraham. And he's like, no, you're not. Well, yeah, you are. In one sense, right? They're physical descendants. But on the other hand, they're not. Jesus calls them sons of the devil. It's those who do the deeds of their father Abraham. But what did he do? He had faith in God. Those are the ones that are actually true children of Abraham. See, Jesus introduces this. This is not Paul only. And this is the expectation of the Old Testament. This is all. Paul is quoting from Hosea. He's quoting from Isaiah. He's quoting from the Old Testament, this reality. When you get to Romans 11, and obviously we don't have any close time to touching that, but let me just make a few comments here. In Romans 11, how many trees are in the chapter? One. What's the tree? Israel. Who's grafted in? Gentiles. So, they're now a part of the Israel of God. And then later in the chapter, the the highly debated verses 24 through 27 area, all Israel, I take it, is made up of Jew and Gentile alike. 
who are foreknown and believe in Jesus. The promise that all Israel will be saved in Romans 11 is true because it's not speaking of only ethnic Israel. That would be so awkward to interpret that as all ethnic Israel in some future sense, especially given Paul's statements already in Romans 2 in the first part of chapter 9. No, it's Jew and Gentile alike. We are the Israel of God. We have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, as the writer of Hebrews says. We live on Mount Zion, the capital of Jerusalem. We are children of the promise. In Galatians 3, when Paul is specking out who are Abraham's seed, who are they? They are people of faith, right? Galatians chapter 3, the whole chapter details this point so clear. So you know I'm not making it up. I'm just going to read it. Not the whole chapter, just a verse. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. The verse right before that, what does it say? There is neither Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, male, female, for you are all in one in Christ Jesus. And again, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, descendants, Israel, heirs according to to promise. Hebrews 8 and 9, the writer of Hebrews takes the, the language of the prophecy in Jeremiah that was only made to Israel in the house of Judah and applies them to all the people in his audience. Certainly we cannot think that there are only ethnic Jews that, that the writer of Hebrews is writing to. No, their understanding of Judah and Israel is expanded. James chapter 1, he opens up by saying he's writing to the dispersed or to the scattered tribes, to the 12 tribes. Now, is he just talking about ethnic Jews? No. His understanding of the Israel of God has come to fruition in a spiritual reality. Revelation chapter 7, you can go look at this at your leisure. You have the two pictures of the people of God 144,000, and then peoples from all over the world. This is not two different groups that are going to be in heaven. They're two, way of looking at the same, two ways of looking at the same group. We are the 144,000. They're the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Look it up. That's the 144,000. So Peter's quote back in chapter 2, verse 10, is remarkable on its face, isn't it? That we were once not a people, but now we are a people. We had once not been given mercy, but now we have been given mercy. But it's even more remarkable because of the history that undergirds it. The promise in Hosea is an additional promise linked to the original promise to Abraham that he'll be the father of a great multitude. He'll be the father of a great nation made up of all the nations of the world. And we who once were in darkness and once not a part of God's family and once not a member of the Israel of God are now in the light. Now are sons of the living God and now citizens of the Israel of God. All right, so that was a lot, wasn't it? It was a lot. It was a lot of, you know, redemptive historical theology. But it's so important that you understand where we are in redemptive history. But we cannot lose, back in First Peter now, we cannot lose the gravity of the verse for all the history behind it. And I'm almost done here. 
It's important to know the history. It's important to understand what undergirds it. But you cannot lose the gravity of the verse for all the history behind it. We must remember when and who to whom these words were first spoken. They were spoken to an adulterous Israel. The whole book of Hosea is about how God regards his people as harlots, prostitutes, taking on other lovers, serve other gods, love other things. It even says at one point that they they serve and love raisin cakes more than him. It's interesting. God first makes these statements to an adulterous people, a people who traded God in for false gods, Baal, Moloch. These people, God says, were not his and would not be shown mercy. And we're, we're to learn something about ourselves here. We are to learn that before we're in Jesus Christ, we all are adulterers. This is the whole world. See, Israel is a sort of mini-drama of the realities that characterize the rest of the world. God used Israel to illustrate really how deep and dark and depraved our hearts really are. But we share humanity, a common humanity with them. And so while Peter can apply these words that Hosea brings, and, 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 and what these words that Hosea records about, you're not my people, but one day those that are called not my people will be called my people. It's a glorious reality for Gentiles because they can be included in the Israel of God, but it also assumes that they once were adulterers, just like adulterous Israel. God is utterly grieved at this world, made up of people in his image who cheat on him every day with family, work, sports, drugs, sex, image, love of money. As Paul says in Romans 1, the whole world exchanges the truth of God for a lie. Israel, we cannot think of them as more evil in nature than all the rest of the world. We can't, because they're not. The law that was given to them, what did it do? It did what God intended it to do. Increase sin. And that's what it would have done to us. But what we learn is that while we may be adulterers like them in heart before we come to Jesus Christ, God loves adulterers. He doesn't keep them adulterers, right? The difference is He comes and displays his power in saving adulterers and changing them into faithful spouses. That's what he does. And don't get me wrong. Yes, we still betray him with our sin, but the difference between the old covenant and the new is that the new covenant people have the law of God on their hearts. They have the fear of God within them. They are changed people. They are people who really do love God, really do walk with him really do want to do his will. 
We are not like them in that sense. We are not like the Old Testament Israel of God in that sense. We are people of faith. But we do learn from Hosea. As Hosea marries this adulterous woman, we do see something of the heart of God. That God is willing to to marry adulterers too. So I don't know what you think about yourself this morning. (laughs) I don't know if there's anyone in here who thinks that they are unlovable because of the sins they have committed. Maybe the real adultery they've committed. Because of the way they've traded God in for things their whole life. Just understand that God will take you to himself. He will. He's got a massive heart. So what do you do? Well, you repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You'll be adopted as his his son or his daughter. You'll become his spouse. You'll become his friend. And you can know him and live with him and for him. But you've got to come to him. You've got to come to Jesus Christ. You've got to let go of your sin and come to him. Don't be like Israel. God holding his arms out all day long. And Jesus said, and they were unwilling. Are you unwilling? See, ultimately this is you. This is on you. Are you willing to come to Jesus Christ? Are you willing to come to him that you may find life? You will find life in him but not if you harden your heart. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you how it just clarifies so much. Lord, pray that you'd help us all to remember who we are in Christ. And help my brethren to more and more just own the fact that they are God's precious possession, his chosen people, the Israel of God, a royal priesthood. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for buying us with your own blood, for being the ransom for all. We ask all this and we praise you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.